Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm at Prey Merck Scopel on the show as always. And we're diving into a basketball-centric podcast. We're crazy. We are taking a break from recruiting from Oregon, preparing for USC in the Pac-12 championship game. And we're preparing and taking a break from coaching craziness of is Mario Cristobal going to be the head coach in that game? Uh, and we are going to move for a break. If you need information on that, we've got a ton of it on DuckTerritory.com. Eric and I recorded a podcast on Monday, getting you up to speed on everything with recruiting and with Mario Cristobal's courtship. I guess I should say Auburn's courtship of Mario Cristobal. So we got podcasts up there, but we're going to deviate away from that for just a brief moment in time and talk basketball. We've said last week we were breaking in the at least one episode a week podcast on just Oregon men's and women's basketball. Both teams played last weekend, Oregon up the men up at uh, Washington and they got a victory against the Huskies, a game in which that rivalry was played. And then the women were in Corvallis and that's where we're going to start with this podcast. Uh, The ducks were ranked number eight at the time. Going into, at the time, number 15, Oregon State's house. Walking away from Gill Coliseum with a 79-59 victory. A game in which it was not over, but essentially the death blow was dealt. And then it was just finding how long it would take for Oregon State to hang on until eventually just succeed, you know, submitting out. Uh, Oregon led 21-11 after that first quarter. And quite honestly, holding Oregon State to just 24 points in the first half is pretty remarkable. Um, Eric, I, I look at this and see a 20-point win on the scoreboard and think, boy, if if you told me when it was March or April, when we knew that Satu Sabali was going pro, Ruthie Hebert, Sabrina Inescu were graduating and we're off to the WNBA as top 10 picks, Sabrina number one, Minyon Moore was also graduating with no longer being on the team. If they went into Oregon State's house and beat them by 20 points, I would be pretty blown away considering all the roster turnover Oregon had from the previous team. And and yet here we are, 20-point win against their rival, a place that traditionally, granted there were no fans, but traditionally that place is extremely difficult to win at. This was the only the second win since 2010 at Gill Coliseum for the Oregon women. And the only other win was last year. Um, it was, well, let's, let's start with just what this says. I think where the program is at. Um, you bring up some really good points in terms of like when the 2019, 20 season ends and obviously ends in a really disappointing fashion with the ending of a season that, should have been special that should have ended with a national championship. I think most people would agree with that. Probably some folks in South Carolina that think that they would have something to say otherwise, but I I think, yeah, I think it was kind of like, okay, I know Oregon has a ton of talented pieces coming in. It's going to be a ton of five stars reasons for optimism. But I think the sense was like, it might take a little time, you know, and I I felt, Hey, they're going to be really, really talented. They could contend for a Pac-12 championship. They could contend to make it back to like a sweet 16 elite eight kind of status, but they're ahead of schedule. Like, I don't think there's any question about it. And 
that was a 20-point game that could have been a 35-point game just as easily. And, I mean, you don't want to gripe about officiating after a team wins by 20, 20 points, but the reality is, is, is Oregon shot seven free throws and Oregon State shot 20. And that's a really big disparity. That's a, you know, 13-point differential right there. So um, there's that part of it in terms of, like, the game could have easily been 35. And the other part is I don't even know if this was really them playing their best game. I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that they finally shot the three ball really well, 12 for 24. the Mike cell is over six. Some of the back. threes that she made were, like, three feet behind the men's line. Yeah. Oh, she shoots it from way out there, and she was on fire from three. Tahina Pow Pow, who, boy, did she announce herself 22 points in this game, four for five from three, nine of 15 from the field. Pretty much every one of those baskets was like a tough contested jump shot, either from three or in the lane, um, to beat the shot clock to end the quarter. Um, and really, I just think you look at the way this team is coming together, and sure, they had those components from a perimeter perspective, but. I also look at it and say they didn't get almost anything in the post. Niara Sabali and uh, Sedona Prince were both kind of like game time decisions, Kelly Graves says. Um, Prince, we documented in the past, she had an ankle injury. It sounds like Niara Sabali was dealing with illness. Neither of them were really, he said, on the drive up, on the bus ride up from Eugene to Corvallis, it was kind of like, I don't know if we're going to get both of them. We might only get, we might not get either of them for the game. They both play, they both play okay. Sabali, 8.6 rebounds, Prince, 4 points, 4 rebounds. They both played a decent number of minutes, but like they didn't have their interior game going. And when, when we talked about this team coming into the season, it was going to be like, this is going to be a team that, unlike previous years, is going to be almost kind of like an inside-outside type of team where you get the ball to Sedona Prince at the high post. And, and she had moments. She had three assists, I think two of them to Mike Sell for threes. Um, and then another one I think she had on a, a backdoor cut. I don't remember. It might have been to Bully. But, like, this, this team isn't even firing at all cylinders. It's not even really that close from my perspective. Um, they shot the crap out of the ball from three, but the interior part wasn't even there. So, really impressive win. And, again, you're right. Oregon goes and beats an Oregon State team that's talented at their place and does it decisively after losing what they lost last season. That just speaks to the status and the state of this program right now, that they can have this quick of a turnaround from – okay, we're replacing four or five starters too. It doesn't really matter. We're still going to be the number seven ranked team in the nation. We're still going to start our first five games of the regular season, mind you, with nine new players by just blasting everybody, which is what they've done. This is the closest game of the year, 20-point win. Could have, like I said earlier, easily been a 30-point win um, if they hadn't kind of taken the foot off the gas and if Oregon State hadn't been, from my perspective, the beneficiary of some pretty um, kind whistles. I'll put it that way. Back-to-back wins over Oregon State in Corvallis for the first time since 2007. First-ranked win of the season after setting a program record with 12 wins over top 25 teams last year. Uh, Held Oregon State just 24 points in the first half. Fifth straight game, Oregon has kept an opponent under 30 points in the first half, and that's how you go about getting these dominating wins that Eric talked about just a minute ago of you know, just straight-up destroying your opponents. You do it by limiting them to fewer than 30 points in the first half and you yourself scoring 40 or more. And that's what the ducks have done. Um, at least 10 different ducks scored for the fifth straight game to open the season, 12 different players grabbed at least one rebound. 
And a season high, 25 assists on 31 made field goals. Six different ducks finished with at least three assists. And I want to start there, Eric. Um, it feels like I, I was able to watch good chunks of this game. Um, I was off the grid, but I was able to watch parts of this game over the weekend. And watching it, I just felt like this was maybe the best on-court chemistry game we've seen from Oregon with so many new faces, so many new players in different positions, this looked like the well-oiled machine. This was the best version of that from Oregon early on this season. Oh, I, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think you're finally starting to feel comfortable with at least what the rotation kind of looks like right now. Um, they've now started the same starting lineup for the last two games and we should know. I think when Sedona Prince is fully healthy, she'll she'll have a say in that, and she probably will push her way back in the starting lineup and not have to reshuffle. But the backcourt with Pow Pow playing point guard, with Taylor Chavez playing kind of the off guard along with Taylor Mike, so I think it works really well. Um, they all complement each other really well. All three of them can shoot the crap out of the ball. Um, the three of them combined to make um, 11 threes on, what is that, uh, 16 attempts. Uh, that'll work. Um, and then they, and they, the distribution was great in terms of the assists and the turnover ratio from that group was, was also really formidable. 13 assists, two turnovers from those three. So I think, I think you're, finding, um, you're finding some chemistry with that backcourt, which was, I think, like it wasn't a question mark of talent, but it was like, how does this all sort out? You know, they've got almost too many talented guards, and it's kind of worked itself out here where you know Tina Pow Pow is, is going to be the one handling the ball, bringing the ball up the court. Either her, Aaron Bully, are probably creating offense if the shot clock is winding down. Bully had her worst game, we should note, and they win by 20 points. She was two for nine, only had um, four points in this one this is after she started the season, really on an offensive tear. But like it's, it's kind of like Pow Pow and Bully are going to be initiating offense for the most part, and you've got Mike Sell who can shoot the crap out of the ball. You've got Chavez who can shoot the crap out of the ball. Both very unselfish players, and then you've got an interior rotation with, with Sabali and Prince or either one of them can really kind of dominate play down there. And I know Taylor Jones for Oregon state played pretty well. She had 14 points to lead the Beavers, but I was impressed with, with kind of the way that they handle things down there too. So you're right. This is, this is by far the, the best game so far by far the best opponent opponent they played so far. And I guess you could throw in Utah as well, considering Utah beat Oregon state a couple of days before this game, but like, the Beavers, this game means a little bit more, and I was really impressed with just the way they took care of business from basically the opening tip through the second quarter, through the third quarter. Kind of, I think, lost a little momentum back part of the third quarter and then the entire fourth quarter there. They tried to kind of substitute and play some more of their true freshman and bench players. But you have to be thrilled with just the way this came together, and both offensively and defensively. This is a team that is very well-rounded. And when the three ball is going in the way it did, frankly, they can win these games going away all season if that's going to be the case because they've got enough defensive prowess and they're unselfish enough. And frankly, they've got enough in the post, even though we didn't see a lot of it, I think to really take care of most teams in this conference. They're not going to be tested again like this until January 3rd when they play UCLA at home. And that's going to be where the tough stretch starts because then after that game, they travel down to Palo Alto to play the number one ranked Stanford Cardinal on January 8th. So in a five-day stretch there, I think in early January, we're really going to start to learn a little bit more about this team. But right now, through five games, 
they're way ahead of my anticipation and expectation from where they'd be. I was just going to kind of leads right into my next question here of does this performance and the five and zero start to the season that we've seen from this team, they're now seventh in the country. Is it fair to assume that I'm not going to say that they're the favorites to win the league, but is it fair to assume that there are maybe co-favorites like it's clear as day that them and Stanford or them Stanford and UCLA any three of those teams can win the league, or are they still maybe a little bit below Stanford and UCLA, two programs who are higher ranked than Oregon right now? Arizona's the other one um, to know as well. They're ranked sixth. Um, so, like, yeah, but I think I, I, to me, I'll be honest here, Arizona has the best player in the league in Ari McDonald, so that's going to be tough. I'll be interested to see how they defend a player of that caliber. Um, that's, I think that's one of the question marks I have with this team is the offensive ability in the backcourt is really clear. They've got a lot of ways to beat you. Defensively, they haven't really been challenged by like an elite star ball handling guard. So Stanford has that. Arizona has that. UCLA has it. Those three teams right there have that kind of elite key point guard to kind of initiate stuff. McDonald being the most clear, clear one. So, like, that's an area of, I don't want to say concern, I just kind of an unknown going into those games of, like, is Tahina Pau-Pau up for that? Does Taylor Chavez, who at times last year was kind of known to be a bit of a defensive stopper, does she take that on? Is that where we see maybe more minutes from a Maddie Shear, who Kelly Graves has suggested, not suggested, just straight out said, is the team's kind of defensive on-ball stopper? Um, a, a, you know, a, probably a guard who hasn't done a whole lot offensively, but she's continuing to get 10 to 15 minutes a game because she can defend at a high level. Is that where she's utilized more? And that's the exciting part is there are these options to do it. So um, I don't know quite yet about, like, I think they're absolutely in the discussion and certainly deserving of that consideration. Um, there's no question that they have as much talent as those programs, just from a prep recruit perspective. And again, I don't think we've seen the best from this Oregon team quite yet either, but it's one thing to be an Oregon State team, which had already kind of shown some signs of wear and tear. I mean, losing to Utah earlier in the week was kind of like, oof, that's kind of took the luster off this game a little bit to me. Of like, if, if let's say Oregon State had beaten Utah in like a close game and had been undefeated and Oregon just came out and blasted the doors off them, I'd probably be feeling slightly better. But the fact that they had already kind of shown a little bit of that wear and tear already, kind of like, okay, maybe Oregon State's just not that good. Um, we're going to learn a lot more in that UCLA game before the Stanford game. I think if they can go and take care of a Bruin team, which had already lost to Arizona, but other than that has looked really, really good, that's going to say a lot. If not, if they struggle and they drop that game, now it's kind of like, okay, what tier are they on? Is it going to be Stanford, Arizona, UCLA, and then Oregon? I don't think so. I think Oregon's depth and their talent, especially on offense, is going to keep them competitive all season. But I also think, like I said, they kind of still yet to face that elite backcourt. And I think you're going to start to see those opportunities creep up a little bit here over the next couple of weeks, um, especially with that UCLA game on January 3rd. The next couple of games, honestly, the next three, Washington, Washington State, and USC, I don't want to totally diminish those teams, some talented players on those teams. Those are games Oregon should win and win going away. I'm not going to say they're going to win by 30 points every game, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if we get to that UCLA game and Oregon's eight and no, and there's yet to be a game where Oregon's really challenged. 
we'll take a break after this question, but I thought it was noticeable noticeable that Sedona Prince was not 100% healthy in that game. I mean, you could tell she was favoring that ankle um, that she sprained two games ago. And she ended up playing 14 minutes. Uh, she had four points, three assists, what, four rebounds for, for Oregon. I think she had a block shot, um, a positive of 12 in the, in the plus minus. Um, two of four from the field, didn't shoot any free throws in that game, no offensive rebounds, four fouls in 14 minutes. Yeah. How concerned are you about her health? And would it maybe be reasonable to, to maybe think, hey, you know what, she might not play in these next couple weeks games like you just brought up because of the opponent that they're playing just to ensure that she is healthy. I'll be interested to see what they do with that. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty clear she wasn't a hundred percent. I was honestly a little surprised she played when we spoke with Kelly Graves prior to Friday's practice. He said she hadn't practiced all week and that she'd be kind of like a game time decision. And the way he said it to me, at least suggested like this is like at best a 50, 50 proposition that she plays. Um, I'm going to guess they're going to keep her on kind of a quote-unquote minutes restriction for these next two games, and then hopefully that USC game is the one where they can give her a full 25 kind of minutes sort of thing because you want her to be not only at 100% physically, but in like game preparation mode when they play UCLA, considering that's the big game, the first to me like the first big, big test. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you go into Washington, Washington State, kind of going like, okay, Niara Sabli, you've been really impressive in your role as kind of the fill-in starting center. Let's let's kind of ride her a little bit more. And then you turn to Sedona and say, hey, give us 10 to 12 to 15 minutes off the bench as, you know, in a, in a role that's a little different than what we had anticipated going into the season. Because, like, going into the season, the expectation was she was going to be – right the star player on this team. And she was going to like be the, she's going to be like an 18 and 10 point per game rebound type of player. Hasn't gotten to that point yet, but she's also been injured the last two of the, you know, she's been injured two of the three games. She didn't play in one. Um, I think you're going to see her probably start to round back into form by that January 1st USC game. But I don't know if you want to sit her entirely against Washington, Washington state, unless it becomes, unless she maybe re injures it or it's something that's really causing her some discomfort. It's going to be certainly interesting to see play out. I think it's clear that when she's playing at her high, highest level, Oregon goes up a level. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they can play when she's not playing at her best and she's not healthy. Uh, and, and that's more so why she's not playing at her best because she's not healthy and seeing how that plays out and seeing the rotations and and the and who Oregon will use in her place until she is healthy and able to fully get back out on the court and do what, makes her such a talented, unique player for the women's team. All right, let's take a quick break. and we come back, we'll then shift sides here a little bit and discuss the men and where they, they are trending right now uh, on the men's side of college basketball. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is on the show as always. And we are diving into now the men's side of the Oregon Duck basketball world and Oregon's men. Uh, they did get to play Washington over the weekend in 
in Washington Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, if you will, five o'clock game in which Oregon extended their winning streak to four straight uh, on the season by winning 74 71 against the Huskies, a game in which they led by, I think, 15 points in the second half and then ended up seeing Washington make a late run in the final minutes to get this game to one point. Uh, Oregon had a one point advantage and Washington had the ball in the final seconds to potentially win it. And uh, kind of crazy how it got there, but nonetheless, Oregon held on 174-71. Four players for Oregon scored in double figures. Chris Duarte had 14.7 rebounds. Uh, and Fale Dante had a double-double, uh, 12 points, 10 rebounds, also had a block. And then Eugene Amarui, before fouling out, had 14 points, five rebounds, three assists. And Eric Williams was steady Eddie for him, continuing his streak of five straight games and double figures with 13 points, seven rebounds, three assists, three steals. We also should note that Chandler Lawson had 18 points off the bench and LJ Figueroa had nine points off the bench. So really just almost equal balance scoring across the entire lineup for Oregon. They improved to four and one on the year overall, one and oh in conference play. All right, Matt, let's, let's look at it this way to start. Let's just review this game, and then we'll talk bigger picture. Um, what were you impressed with and you liked when Oregon was building that lead? And maybe what were you, cons what were you concerned with when Washington kind of caught back up? So Oregon had – I mean, Dan Alban said it before the game going in. They had the, the blueprint. They had the players to beat this zone that Washington deploys the two, three zone. And to do that, you have to get someone in the middle of the zone and have that guy be a good decision maker. It's either he needs to quickly turn around and shoot the mid range jumper or swing it back out or quickly dump it off to the guy uh, underneath the hoop as you know, the one of the, the defenders in the back line comes up to defend them. And they had, a gazillion open looks. And unfortunately for Oregon, it was just a night in which Eric Williams was four of 11 from the field. Eugene Amarui was three of 13 from the field. Uh, LJ Figueroa was four of 12. The only guy that was really effective in that position was Chandler Lawson, who was four of eight from the field. A very similar performance than that Oregon got out of him uh, last year against the Huskies. And so I look at this and think they just – didn't simply execute. That's why this game was close because they got the looks, they got the clean looks. They just couldn't make the mid range jumper. And I think one of the weirder things that happened was in the second half, when Oregon really kind of blitzkrieged them and, and really built their lead up really high uh, against Washington. One of the first things that they adjusted to in the first, in the second half from halftime was putting crystal Arte in the middle of that zone, if you will. And he Got a couple. He got a couple baskets. He got a couple swing passes or hockey assist type assists, um, and then they just went away from it. I don't know why. Um, maybe it was because he had a couple turnovers involved. I, I'm not quite sure, but they went away from it. The shots couldn't. They continued to not fall, and then they had a stretch where they just played really bad defense, and that led the Huskies to get back into the game. Now I will also say that like I'm not too concerned. Um, I mean, obviously you, you do get concerned when a team has a 15 point second half lead and the game comes down to the final possession in the game. And it could go either way for who wins that game. But I do think Oregon was, sometimes you run into situations in which 
the team that you're playing, just the scheme, the the roster makeup that they have compared to your roster makeup is a great equalizer. And Washington deploys a 2-3 zone that you don't see anywhere else in the Pac-12 for that most part. No one else really runs that zone. They have the most length to run the zone in a corrective manner that, that they run, and it's difficult to prepare for. And the Huskies, while they aren't very talented, they do have a lot of just raw athleticism, and the zone is a great equalizer. And you combine that with the fact that Oregon didn't have the Pac-12's leading three-point shooter last season healthy for this game and, and Will Richardson. I think Will is worth at least four or five more points offensively for Oregon, and he's probably worth three or four more points defensively for Oregon. So you look at this and think Will's probably worth right around nine more points for Oregon. This is a 12-point a win if, if Will is, is playing in this game because of his three-point shooting and his ability to stretch out that zone that Washington would deploy, which would then make it even easier for Oregon's big guys to score baskets. You mentioned Will Richardson, and that was what I wanted to go to next. And not necessarily an update because we know he's not going to play for for a while here. What, probably about another month, Matt. Yep. What have you seen from the players replacing him? You look at this game, Amari Hardy and Jalen Terry. I know they've had better moments, but against some lesser competition. But you look at them in this game, they play 40 total minutes, shoot two for six from the field, turn it over about as many times as they assist it and combine for four points. It seems like you need a little bit more production. From there. And I don't necessarily think this game being as close as it was was due to the fact that those players were not at their best because partly because of what the defense that you just mentioned, that, that kind of limits limits a little bit what you get from that spot, I think, at times, just because of how much length there is up there. But, like, what's your confidence level with those two's production? And do you think, like, can Oregon overcome consistently getting such limited production from that spot? Yeah, like, Amari Hardy and Jalen Terry right now are combining for just under eight points and just under um, six assists a game together. And the problem is, is, you know, Hardy and Terry are combining for three turnovers. So it's a two-to-one ratio. And I, I think against middle-of-the-road teams like a Washington, um, like a Washington State, uh, an Arizona this season, um, a Cal, a, a Utah, those those t- Oregon State, like Oregon will be fine. Oregon will be fine in those instances because they have enough talent across the board elsewhere to make up for it. And they won't be able to you know, they won't, it won't really cost them an issue. The game against UCLA, which is their only scheduled game right now, you know, that's their next scheduled game, December 23rd. That scares me a little bit because the Bruins do have good guard play. The, the Bruins do have good talent. They are one of the better teams in the conference. At Colorado, January 7th. That game scares me without Will Richardson. And then obviously the Arizona State game at home, January 14th, right around the time when Will might be back um, with Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, and Josh Christopher. The, you know, the Sun Devils have a ton of guards. Those are the types of games that really concern me when we get to the, you know, to the point where we're not seeing uh, the whole story a little bit. 
and the whole Ross, you know, the whole compliment of being able to go and being able to, you know, get this group out and, 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 and play at their full best capacity. That's where my issues go. I kind of mentioned for the women's team, it's going to be hard to kind of, I guess the first measuring stick game is going to be UCLA for the women on January 3rd on the men's side. Is it this upcoming game with UCLA on December 23rd, or do you have to go down the schedule a little bit before you get to a game where you think you kind of learn the whole story here? And I know Oregon, I think will be challenged in some of these games because despite the conference, not having a team ranked in the top 25, which by the way is kind of not good, not Not, good, not not great. Um, (laughs) You'd prefer to have at least a couple teams ranked in there. But like, I, 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 even with that said, these teams, I think are all, there's like certain level of like evenly matchedness. I know that's not a word across the board. Um, are you expecting to learn a lot about a week from today when they face the Bruins at Matthew Knight Arena? Or are we going to have to wait a while? Well, I, I do know Dana Allman has said he wants to play. He wants to play a game before UCLA on the 23rd. And it wouldn't surprise me if they play one game this week, you know, maybe like a Thursday game, and then they play like a Sunday game or a Monday game um, before they would go off and, and, and play the Bruins on that Wednesday. Like they, today's the 14th. So that probably wouldn't work. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they play like on Wednesday, the 16th or maybe Thursday, the 17th, and then play a Saturday game on the 19th and then have, you know, a couple days to prepare for UCLA on the 23rd. Um, So I think we'll know a little bit more about this team before UCLA, but big picture. I, I look at this and think, We'll, really ha- we'll, we'll have a really good idea of where this Oregon team is after the month of January because they play the Bruins, they play the Bruins at home on the 23rd of December. They play Stanford at home on January 2nd. They go on the road at Cal- uh, Colorado on January 7th, and then they get Arizona and Arizona State at home on the 14th and the 16th of January, plus a game against Oregon State on the 23rd. And then they close out the month of January at UCLA at USC. And they would close out the season then with home games against the Washington schools early February, road games at Arizona schools middle of February, home games against Colorado and Utah, and then a home, uh, a road stretch at Stanford, at Cal, at Oregon State. I mean, I look at that and think one, two, three, four, five, six – seven, eight games in February that they should win. Whereas in January, you look at it and say, I think a USC game is kind of a top toss up at, on the road that UCLA road games, a toss up. The Arizona state game is a toss up. Um, I, I think the at Colorado game is a toss up. The Stanford game is a toss up. The Bruin game is a toss up. I think Oregon is significantly better than, than Utah, significantly better than Arizona, Oregon state and certainly significantly better against Cal. So we'll get a good idea in the month of January as good as they are without Will Richardson, plus how good are they with Will Richardson back in the fold because they're going to play some really tough teams that that stretch. And I think that stretch is going to ultimately decide if Oregon wins the regular season championship or not in college basketball on the men's side because of, UCLA is a threat. They'll play them twice in the month of January, late December. 
they play Stanford a threat at home. That's a huge critical game. Arizona State they will play um, at home. That's a huge early critical game. Um, obviously, I think Arizona's a critical game, but we'll know more in the next probably six weeks, five, you know, four or five weeks than we will in the next two or three. I think you're being very optimistic and saying the Colorado game at Boulder is a toss-up, Matt. <laughs> well, there's no crowd. That's that's the thing. There's no crowd. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And wouldn't that be the ultimate way for this streak to, to, to finally end is they win a game in Boulder when there are no fans there? You know, um, you know the that series is heavily tilted one direction when my nine-year-old son is asking me, uh, Dad, when does Colorado and Oregon play basketball at Colorado? And I tell him, and he goes, Oh, well, I can already tell they're not supposed to win because Oregon never wins at Colorado. Smart. <laughs> Smart. He's, that's the kind of analysis that uh, you'd expect from a from a, a future superstar in the industry right there. Um, no, and it's it's just it's funny, but it's true. And I guess I look at this conference here and I think it's kind of crazy to think that Oregon could be, and of course, we've only now seen the start of conference play, but that you could look at the schedule and think, Oregon might be able to get through the meat of this without Will Richardson, who I don't know where you want to say he is in terms of the most valuable player, certainly top three on this. He's not the most talented, but I think he's the most valuable. Okay. So we'll say he's the top guy, but you think that they could get through a stretch of the season without him. And you think, I mean, realistically, what is it? Probably early February is when his timeline to return would be because what he got, he heard is, thumb on november no december 1st or something like that yeah so that's like well maybe maybe even a little later than that um or maybe into maybe maybe a little earlier than that actually sorry like he he probably is projecting to be back right around um we don't really know yet because we haven't gotten an update since the injury happened but the, the the diagnosis was four to six weeks and so he's probably trending to be available for oregon right around the the time that they play um, the Arizona schools on January 14th and January 16th. Um, that's where it wouldn't surprise me if they say, let's hold them out for those two games and play them against Oregon state, because there's one game that week it's on a Saturday. Like, so like if he's maybe available to play a little bit, you know, 14th and 16th, but Oregon could hold him out and get him a whole extra week, essentially, of, of more time to rehab and get in better shape and then throw him out there against an Oregon State team that's not good at all just before they go on the road to play UCLA and USC. That could be when he plays, January 23rd. But it wouldn't surprise me if he's out there the 14th against Arizona State at home. Either way, whenever he does return, but if they can get through this stretch here of conference games without him missing you know, half a dozen and still be afloat for the conference championship. It says a lot about this program and, and says a lot about this roster and the talent top to bottom. Yeah. And, and that's a big reason why I think this, te- I picked this team to win the conference because um, their ability to play any style, really like they could grind it out, slow tempo back to the basket. Every possession is huge. They've got those types of guys. They could play up tempo and play really fast and, and, loose and, and, you know, lots of shots. They've got the shooters on the team, I think, you know, to, to, to play that style. Um, Dana Altman has said that right now they're not good enough to, to play in the eighties, both teams playing in the eighties. But I think in a one-off situation, you can do that and win against most teams that they would play. Probably wouldn't try to do that against Arizona state, but anyone else in the conference, I would. And the thing I like most about this team is 
look at their wings and Chris Duarte, Eric Williams Jr., LJ Figueroa. Those three guys are all 6'6", and all three of them are tremendous defenders uh, and can guard multiple players uh, on the floor at you know one time. And essentially, I, I, I think this team, while they don't have the shot-blocking capabilities that previous Dana Altman teams had with the Chris Boucher and the Jordan Bell and the Kenny Wootens of the world, I think this team defensively has the ability to become the best unit we've seen at Oregon defensively because of their length and their athleticism on the perimeter that it could be impossible for teams to drive on Oregon. I mean, watching, watching them play against the Huskies and then the last couple games before that, their defensive intensity is tremendous. I mean, Jalen Terry picks up some fouls now and again, but and he's a freshman, but he is very good at staying in front of any player that he needs to guard and ensure that that he's a, a, a pest to that player. Chris Duarte and Eric Williams and LJ Figueroa are shut down defenders. I think Eugene Amarui is a really good defender. And then Afale Dante, when he gets matched up with any kind of a 6'9", 6'10", or taller big guy, someone that's not, you know, like a Eugene Amarui or um, like a Michael McIntosh, you know, those mobile big guys, the hybrid types. If he, if he faces a traditional center, he does really well. I mean, go back and look at Infale Dante's production the last few games when he played Florida A&M, who had a traditional center. He, that was also undersized. Like it wasn't like a, a Eugene Amarui that was 6'6", 230. It was more like a small forward, but had the ability to play center. It was a 6'6 center that was not nearly as athletic as a Eugene Amarui. And, and, and Fale Dante destroyed him. 22 points, five rebounds, bunch of dunks, couple blocks, two steals against Washington when Nate Roberts was on the court for, for the Huskies when he wasn't in foul trouble and they played him because he's their best center. And Fale Dante dominated. I mean, he was by far the better player. 12 points, 10 rebounds, a block, a steal, a couple dunks in that game. Then you go and you look at Eastern Washington, a team that deployed a bunch of perimeter-oriented players and didn't have a true traditional back-to-the-basket big. He had just three points. He had he had a couple of rebounds and a couple of steals, but really wasn't effective from the floor. Twenty-five point, uh, twenty-five percentage points. Uh, picked up some fouls. Seton Hall was the same way. They didn't really have a traditional center that they would you know back-to-the-basket type game and you know. Dante played better in that one. And then Missouri, he didn't match up well with them either. And, and that was just a really bad performance uh, against Missouri. So I, I look at this and think if Dante can play and there's going to be teams that have the traditional big guys that will be a good matchups for Infale Dante. So when you throw him into the picture, this team is, is loaded and it's just all about getting time on the court together to, to develop that chemistry and get used to, the offense and the defense. It's going to do it for us here on the Opposite and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We will have more football-centric stuff later this week. We're prepping the site and you, the listener, for Oregon versus USC from the Coliseum Friday night, Pac-12 championship, a bid on the line for one of the New Year's Six Bowl games. We'll see if Oregon can repeat as 
Pac-12 champions two years in a row. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later, folks.